Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent virtual congressional briefing we held on the best arguments for and against paid federal leave. If you'd like to contact the scholar involved in this briefing, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Next, you'll hear from Karen Zarnecki, Vice President of Outreach at Mercatus, who will be moderating the discussion. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for our briefing on paid family leave. My name is Karen Zarnecki, and I'm Vice President of Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. For those of you who are not familiar with the Mercatus Center, we are a university-based research center located on George Mason's Arlington campus, and all of the research that we provide is grounded in economics. I should also mention that we also have an academic student programs division, which helps train the next generation of masters and PhD students in economics. And uh, oftentimes they'll go serve in government, on the Hill, or even private industry. Now our speaker today is Veronique DeRuji, or Vero, as we call her, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She's a nationally syndicated columnist and she has a weekly opinion column with Creator Syndicate that shows up in newspapers around the country. She also has columns with Reason Magazine and a blog on National Review Online. She's testified numerous times in front of Congress on the effects of fiscal stimulus, debt and deficits, and regulation on the economy. Now, Vera, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay. I want to start with the most basic of questions here. Paid leave means a lot of things to a lot of people. What do we know about paid leave in the United States? So you're right. It means a lot of things to a lot of people because they have many different types of leaves. And while very often we talk about paid leave in the context of the birth of a child or the adoption of of a child, especially recently, I would say in the last few years, the truth of the matter is that this is not even the most important leave that Americans take. Looking at data show that roughly half of the leave that Americans take are for uh, them being sick. They're actually sick leaves. A fifth of the leaves are for the birth of a child or or adoption. And uh, roughly 25% is for taking care of another child. So it means there are just a lot of type of leaves that American can take. And while obviously you know, it's important to be able to stay home after the birth of a child. That's not the only leave that exists out there and that Americans are actually taking. Okay, let's talk about the international comparison, because we're oftentimes compared with other countries. And there are many people who think the United States should have a federally provided paid leave program. We are singled out as the only industrialized country without a federal paid leave program. Is this reason enough to implement such a program? So, I mean, it is true that we we are the only industrial country that does not have a federal or national paid leave program, but it shouldn't be understood as meaning that workers in America do not enjoy paid leave benefit. So according to uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Roughly 17% of workers have access to paid leave, which, by the way, is an increase. And that's pre-pandemic, obviously. 17 or 70? 17%? 17%. 17, okay. And this is an increase 
from two years before uh, of 13%. So it's it's growing. However, it's important to understand that this number is, is extremely underrepresents rather than being misleading because the BLS explains its methodology very, very clearly. And actually BLS only reports uh, the paid leave that exists separately from all these other leaves that we've talked about, like sick leaves. And of course there's vacation, personal leave, short-term disability leaves that are available to employees. When you actually properly account for all the different type of leaves that exist and government surveys show that actually a vast majority of workers report having access to uh, paid leave that covers all sorts of different needs. And importantly enough, three out of four of these workers who take leave in a given year are full pay. So yes, we do not have a national program, but arguably we are the only country that has this incredible, vibrant, actually flexible, diverse pay leave programs offered to employees uh, to feed their needs, the needs of the workers, but also the ability to provide of the company. Okay, so let me ask a clarifying question here. So you are taking issue with the Bureau of Labor Statistics definition of paid leave because you said it's a very narrow description and doesn't account for all the other type of leave that American workers have. Is that accurate? Yes, it's accurate. It's not It's not that it's a, it's a bad measure. It's a measure that specifically looks, only looks at uh, the program that is entirely separate, like a separate paid leave program, specifically for the birth of a child or adoption of a child. If a company that has that type of leave, like roped into all the other sick leave, vacation, uh, personal leave, like at Mercatus we have, would not appear in that BLS survey. Why is that? It's just their methodology. I mean, they decided to have a real focus, simply isolated programs of paid leave. Okay. And, so and they're and they're very open about what they're doing. The problem is when that data is used to make the case that somehow there's a market failure because look at how few workers actually get leaves. Well, it's actually not accurate. It's not an accurate representation when used in this context. Okay, very good. Let me move on. Now, there are women, Vero, that don't have access to paid leave at all. So for those individuals, should the government step in and help them? So it is true that there, and as we said, I mean, not 100% of workers have access to paid leave, but that actually doesn't make it a case for paid leave. Uh, I think we're going to cover some of the negative impact of paid leave. But I would say that the, the, the first, let's first identify who are these workers. These workers, I mean, if you're low skill, low pay worker, it's very likely you work in a very small firm. And it is very likely as a result, these firms do not provide paid leave. If you're a temporary worker, if you're an hourly worker, uh, you usually do not have access to paid leave. So yes, we could say that wouldn't it be ideal for all of these people to have paid leave, but there are two problems with this. Uh, again, we're, I'm sure we'll cover this and the rest of the Q&A, but uh, first, there's no free lunch. I mean, 
everything has trade-off. Uh, we have to realize that a lot of these low-skill, low-pay employees, right, uh, I mean, they value the cash that they are getting. And while they would love to get additional benefit without any reduction of they paid over time, we know this is not how it works. Uh, over time, workers, when you add benefits, the Originally, you see a bump, but over time, company compensates by lowering the take-at-home pay. And so you see a growth in total compensation, but less pay at home. I mean, this is why, by the way, one-size-fits-all is not great, because among these workers, for sure, some would be willing to shoulder this trade-off and other wouldn't. But there's actually an even bigger problem with these workers is that actually it is extremely hard to get to them and to actually even through a government programs we've seen them in the states we have seven states that have implemented paid leave in recent years and and some of that some of these programs are are fairly old so we know a lot about them uh, there are two that have legislated but haven't yet be fully implemented in the way that we could actually look at their effect and what we see from uh, these programs is like these workers because one of the things we have to understand is all those government programs and by the way the federal program proposed by the democrat is only partial leave yes it is 12 12 weeks of paid leave but it's only for two thirds of the wages. Well, in the states, sometimes it's 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 anywhere between fifty and seventy percent of wages. So what you see is that actually those low skill workers, uh, because they're only partial leaves, it's not necessarily worth for them to take that leave. Also, they may still be worried to get penalized if they take the leave. So let me give you the example of California. It's been in place for quite a while. There's still a very low take-up rate for low-income workers. Only 4% of those in the lowest income bracket in California take paid leave as opposed to 21% in the highest income bracket. And uh, as I said, a big reason is like it's a partial pay and it may not be enough for these low-skill workers. But but even in countries, when you look internationally, like even in countries like Norway, where the government is actually offered a program to cover 100% of pay, they actually, those studies have demonstrated that, they, that the benefit is very poor redistributive property. Again, what it means is it has, we have a harder time. They're very hard to actually, they're a group of people that are very hard to tackle. We can help them like more growth, um, you know, and, and a vi more vibrant economy. We've seen this after the, the tax uh, reform was announced. A lot of company came out and not only announced that they were going to jack up the existing programs they would have, some announced they would adopt a paid leave program and others like Target, for instance, started saying, actually announced that they were going to be also including employees like part-time workers and temporary workers, uh, make them eligible for the benefits. Okay. Let me just back up a second. So with the example of California, and you said 4% of low-income workers take advantage of it, um, but it's, it's not really worth it for them because it's only partially paid. And, and I think what I heard you said was that 
those programs benefit higher income individuals when, when those are established by the state. Is that is that accurate? Yes. So one of the reasons why we think that only 4% of workers are actually using these benefits is that the benefit is partial and hence it's just not enough to cover all the wages of the worker for them to take that leave. The would, other would some argue then that you should actually have a fully paid program? We have seen that even in cases of country like Canada or Norway that have implemented 100% pay, there's still a lot of problems with actually tapping into that low income population. The other thing is like there's an information problem. It's like actually there are a lot of workers that actually don't know these these programs are available to them. And let's not ignore the fact that very often what ends up happening with these programs is that they're very they they're the burden of compliance, the burden of applying for them, uh, the timing of them make them just not that useful to those skilled workers. And, and finally, I'd like to say that, I mean, for those concerned about uh, income inequality or you know, the fairness of, of proposal, one of the things that has been relatively well established at the state level is like those higher middle and higher income workers who are benefiting from the program who are using that program more, they are there often are the same who already had access to paid leave before. And what we've heard uh, anecdotally, companies tell Congress, for instance, like Deloitte, I think, said this, I think it was two years ago, two summers ago, is like, you know, they actually asked their employees to first take the state program and then they will fill the gap. So there's just all the incentives are such that basically higher income workers who already had access, who work for firms, have an, actually are better informed about it because the employers have an incentive to be better informed, to be informed about this than lower income uh, workers. And, and the burden or the design is such that lower income workers still just don't, uh, just don't go for these benefits. As okay. much as, and it's a problem. If we are saying that this is why we're doing this, it is actually not working. Okay, you may have mentioned this a little bit, but I want to um, ask you a, a direct question: What are the some of the consequences of federal provided paid programs on women once they've been implemented? So, there's a huge literature on the issue. I mean, let's be upfront about the fact that there is no question that. The benefits are of getting paid leave as a worker are well established, and and companies know that. This explains why in the U.S., while we don't have a federal program, we actually have this vast network of paid leave programs. I mean, for worker retention, the morale. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to the children. This is not in question. This is absolutely not in question. What is not in question either is actually the consequence of having a government paid policy on um, beneficiaries, on their wages, prospect for advancement, overall employment, and things like this. And again, there's always trade-offs, even with private policies, but with government policies, we, we know 
that there are actually really, really big trade-offs that the proponent of those policies uh, at, the, at the federal or state level, by the way, uh, just don't often acknowledge. I mean, I want to I give an example about Denmark has been in the news a lot as kind of a, uh, a country that we should, uh, that should be a role model for us. I mean, in all sorts of ways. Uh, I have my issues about that claim, but uh, it's particularly interesting to look at Denmark first, because there's been a lot of studies about Denmark, and especially if we look at the Paveley program. So Denmark is known as a, a country, having a government that offers this incredibly generous benefit, 52 weeks of leaves, and they have a lot of very other generous, friendly benefits. But the problem is like, actually, as we said, there are always trade-offs. One of the things that people argue is that if we had such a benefit, it would address things like the pay gap. And studies have shown that it's actually not the case. While even in countries like Denmark, while men and women's wages grow the same uh, before they have children, once they have kids, basically mothers saw their earning rapidly reduced by nearly 30% on average. And while men's earning stayed the same, um, those studies have also shown that women might also become less likely to work. And if employed, they earn lower wages and fewer hours. And another thing that should matter, I mean, when we talk about equity and, and women in the workforce is that they are underrepresented in managerial positions. This is all in Denmark. And this is a study. I mean, these results have actually been you know, been found to be uh, true, you know, in other countries and in the U.S. I mean, I think there was a recent uh, big study in California that that pretty much highlights a lot of these same elements. We've got a couple of questions that have come in, and I'm going to address Max's question. I'm going to only do one part of your question, though, Max. Considering Veronique has an issue with BLS's definition of paid leave, what would a good definition be? And then his second part, uh, he asked if there's a, uh, do we have a bill number for a democratic proposal for paid leave? I don't know that. I don't know if you know that right now, but. Well, I know, I know. I mean, okay. So again, I think BLS is totally legit. The way BLS does its survey, BLS is very transparent about what the number means, right? And, And I think it's totally okay for BLS to do it this way. What is not okay is to take this number and imply that it means that only 17% of workers in America have access to paid leave, because that is actually not what the BLS data says. And the, the problem was actually the network that we have that is extremely flexible. It's not a one size fit all. So okay. I, I, like the, I like the fact that governments have done a lot of surveys to actually uh, see it, ask workers directly whether they have access to paid leave. I think, I think that's, that's, that's a very good way to do it, but we have to consider the data, all of it. Not just like focus on the BLS. And as for 
I, I will tell you, I mean, obviously, uh, there are all sorts of proposals in the states, and, and there are like seven states that have adopted it, as I said, I've adopted their own programs, and they're all very different. But as for Congress, there are several proposals, but the more prevalent one is called the Family Act. I mean, that's kind of the one that Democrats uh, rally behind. And, and I assume uh, President-elect Joe Biden will too. He hasn't been, he hasn't given details, but he has said 12 weeks of paid leave. And uh, that plan would provide workers with 12 weeks of leave, cover two thirds of workers' wages. And it's called a cup of coffee program because allegedly it would be financed with 0.4% payroll tax or $4 a week. The problem with this is like the numbers don't add up when you actually look at the fact that just simply 16% of workers in America take seven weeks of leave. If you assume these number alone, you're basically in a much higher. So, so as designed, the Family Act would cost $192, if I remember, uh, per workers per year. And if you just account for 17, if you just had 16% of workers taking their usual seven weeks of paid leave, you would at least need 450. And if you actually use much more, I recommend looking at the work that has been done at the American Action Forum or like at the Heritage Foundation, Rachel Grazler's, who was a really great number. If you actually account for two things, the number of people who would take it as they had been taking it, or even if there, or if there is an increase, you actually require an increase in taxes that significantly. I think Rachel calculated something like two point fifty five percent payroll tax, which is significantly larger. It's like a thousand three hundred dollars per per average worker, and so anyway, it's it's significant. An alternative of course, would be not to raise taxes, but to to do rationing and to just basically tell workers that the kind of leaves they were taking before, they can't take them anymore. I think that would be uh, traumatic. Here's another question. Currently, we have a federal paid tax, paid leave tax credit. Is this the right approach? Should it be expanded to cover more than 50% of wages? So, I mean, some conservatives like this, and I, I'm, I actually don't like social engineering through the tax code, uh, if only because it, it doesn't have the incentive, it doesn't create the incentives that we hope it will, and it's distortive, and it's it's not transparent, and and so I, I think the answer for me would be would be no. I think there are things we could do. And that things we should do. So what you want is you want to be able for that network of paid leave and a company to be able to serve their workers as much as possible. Some of the things that they should do in that case. So for instance, that there's a uh, uh, workers, low income workers should be allowed. They don't now are not allowed to when they do overtime pay, uh, overtime work. They should be allowed to choose whether they want to use this and put it aside for time off as opposed to pay. There's a bill that's been introduced in Congress. I I think it's called the Worker Flexibility Act, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, don't put me on this. But there is there is one that do this and that that would have that would give you know 
workers that possibility to judge based on their needs. First, they could decide to do overwork if they wanted to, and they they also uh, would decide what to do. If they they don't think they're going to need leave, why would they not take the pay? There are other things that are more general. We could have a universal savings account, like making savings for Americans easier would be great. The way the government incentivizes savings right now is, is, is very categorical. It's like you have to save for education, but there are all the conditions on uh, how much money you can put and, and how you can withdraw it, which, which penalty. You can do that for, for retirement. You can do, and so it's, it's very, very uh, divided. The universal savings account would, would get rid of all these categories and basically allow worker to save money. It would be like an IRA. Think about it as a Roth IRA where you put after-tax money and then you can use it for, for absolutely everything. The, the growth, the interest uh, would, would not be taxed. So there would be a tax advantage this way. But then you can also use it for anything you want, whether it's leaves or you know, All right. whatever. Uh, does paid leave keep low-income women attached to the labor force? Are women forced to quit their jobs because they don't get paid time off? So there is no doubt. There is no doubt in the world with no required trade-off, with where no cost and, and no nothing. There's no doubt that having everyone being able to benefit for paid leave is a benefit. I mean, there is the benefit from paid leave is not. I mean, you can't question it. The problem is, is that benefit outweighed by a system that mandates it by a government-provided system? And, and the question, very sadly, is yes. Yes. I mean, they're like we can point out to all the benefits, like attachment. I mean, this is why one of the reasons why companies like provide paid leave, I mean, is, is one of them is attachment to the workforce. So I just wish we lived in a magical world where there were no trade-offs, where there were no, just no costs to a program that it had just trade benefits, but it's actually not the case. The thing we need to remember also, which is significant, is that the fact that we haven't talked about this, the way these programs like the state programs or the family act would be paid for is through a payroll tax, right? I mean, the money comes from the private sector in the first place. So, and, and the payroll tax is known to be regressive. Uh, Like a lot of the states, not all of them, I think two of them put it on the employer, but most of them put it on the employee. The truth of the matter, economists know that it doesn't matter uh, ultimately, it's the workers that pay the price. So there are all of these costs that need to be taken under consideration. Is it worth? Is it worth it? And and the literature seems to be saying that yes, there are so many benefits, but like the government provision of it is just creating costs that are often higher than the benefits. All right, I've got two other questions that I want to address. Uh, Patrice from the Independent Women's Forum, hello, Patrice, haven't seen her in a long time, uh, says that uh, they propose making the social security system more flexible to meet workers' needs for paid time off to have a baby. They think the solution that is a solution that is not mandatory, not a mandate on business, and not a tax on all workers. 
She says that we do this without, on balance, adding to the national debt because workers delay their retirement. What do you think about that approach? Well, so Patrice is asking this question because uh, she knows I disagree. This is That's okay. The- that, we're here to discuss this. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the very rare issues where I disagree with uh, my friend at at, uh, IWF. I actually think that as presented on paper, it sure it has some of uh, it doesn't actually fall for some of the mistakes that the Democrats are making in their proposals. It doesn't make it mandatory. It looks on paper as if as if I wouldn't uh, grow the size of government because what you take in earlier years, you basically paid for in the future. But but that's magical thinking. For one thing, first, it grows the scope of government. Federal government would be involved in an area where it wasn't involved before. Second, social security is certainly not in a, in a state of financial health that actually justifies using it for these type of purposes. Third, the slippery slope, which guarantees that something which on paper looks like it doesn't increase the size of government at first, actually will increase the size of government. Because as designed, the program is saying, you're gonna, you're gonna retire a little later if you've taken the benefits. First, there's all the problems of what happens if uh, the woman dies, what happened in the, in the process, what happened, there's all sorts of things, but also the political system. If we know something about the growth of government, it's like something that starts small always end up big. In fact, you can just simply look at the data about the evolution in OECD country of the provision of paid leave. In the 1980s, those programs were providing roughly 14 weeks of leave on average. In 2013, which is the last number, latest number, it's like 42 weeks of paid leave. The same will happen. People are going to demand that, why is it just uh, the people who've had children who can do this? Why not actually expand it to and use it for other means? If I remember correctly, Elizabeth Warren, in fact, uh, said that we could be using it to pay for child care and all sorts of things. But also, I mean, I can hear conservatives in the future. I mean, we're talking really in the future. We cannot bound the hands of future Congresses, future conservatives saying, oh, it's so unfair. It's so unfair that these mothers who've given us children, children for this nation, should have to retire later for having taken this benefit. And that's how government programs grow. This is my only area of disagreement with you guys. That's okay. Um, Here's another good one. Is the way to address the pay gap to force men to take paid leave, would that correct the economic distortions of paid leave or double them? Well, interestingly enough, like the studies in Denmark and Norway and all these countries have actually showed that it's not the case. It's not the case. And uh, the paid gap exists. In fact, if something is quite remarkable that I I was looking at the literature last, last fall, I guess, when I was uh, preparing for a debate on capitalism and, and women. And I was looking at the Nordic countries, which are often elevated as, you know, this 
these great countries for gender equality. And one of the things that was interesting is like there was a clear connection between the generosity of these programs and actually these countries falling more into their respective gender uh, goals. So it means that actually, it, while, not, while men in, in Denmark and in, in Norway, they take more leaves, it still hasn't actually kind of like made everyone equal, I think understandably so. And, and you can still see in the data that this is not a panacea for wage equality. By the way, I'd like to actually point out to a recent study that said, which I thought was actually kind of one of the arguments I used to say was like, you know, we're focusing on paid leave for the birth of a child. But the truth of the matter is like, if there is something that's increased disincentive, probably when you think about the investment of having a child is the cost of childcare. And there's a study, a big study that was done, uh, your respected scholars, it's on NBR. And they- Economic research. Yes. So, and, and showed first, it looked at Austria the last 50 years and it showed at the provision of paid leave doubled with generous provision of childcare subsidies. And they found that it changes nothing. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Is there a question that I have not asked you, Veronique, that you really need to tell everyone that they should consider? No, I just, I just think when, there are a lot of things we all want and we all want the same. I mean, like I would love if, you know, if everyone could get paid leave, but the, the problem is that it's, it's the wrong approach to only look at the benefits of a program and failing to look at the cost that exists. And, and unfortunately in this area, there's a lot of uh, wishful thinking uh, that take place and, we can't do this because ultimately the women and workers who are going to be paying the price of these policies are actually precisely the one we want to we want to help. And I, I just think that it would be sad if that were the case, especially we have a lot of literature. And again, there's no debate about the benefits of paid leave, but benefits, I mean, benefits of a program, if you're going to look at the benefit of program, look at the cost too. And in this case, unfortunately, it's hard to find the way for the government to provide it without cost exceeding those benefits. All right. So lots of unattended consequences. This is the end of our briefing. I want to thank you for joining us. If anybody wants to follow Veronique, uh, just send us an email while we can connect you too. I'm sorry that our time was so short, but we want to keep these as uh, tight as we possibly can. So thanks for joining us and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Veronique. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.